Hello and welcome to the Fan America podcast. I'm your host, Mark Bujarski, and we have another great episode for you this week. This week, I got to sit down with Adam Snavely of The Athletic and Backheel.com. Adam is a longtime soccer writer who has found a niche of writing about some of the more fun, strange, and often downright weird parts of this game that we love. Uh, if you followed Adam's writing for any length of time now, you'll know that it is both fun and humorous, while also just allowing the reader to lift off this veil of seriousness that surrounds our little game. Adam and I got to talk through some of his more recent articles, as well as getting into some of his background, and it was a fantastic conversation. So without further ado, here's my interview with Adam Snavely. Welcome, everybody, to a very special episode of uh, Fan America. Um, today's guest is a very special one. You may know uh, him from his work as a writer, editor for .esports, as well as a writer for The Athletic and Backheeled, um, covering MLS and the men and women's national teams, uh, and much, much more. Uh, genuinely, one of the more entertaining follows you'll find on Twitter and in the soccer landscape, and a self-proclaimed soccer weirdo. Adam Snavely. Welcome to the podcast, man. Hey, thank you for having me. Uh, that list of accomplishments makes me feel more impressive than I actually am, but uh, thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Well, um, so just a little background for the listeners. Um, I'm sure they're familiar with your writing um, in The Athletic and The New Back Healed, which we'll get into uh, a little bit later, but um, just so we get to know you a little bit as a person, tell us about um, what you do, where you're from, and uh, then we'll we'll jump into a conversation about the soccer specific. Yeah, so uh, I was, uh, as I was telling you actually, before we actually started the recording, uh, I'm originally from the East Coast. Uh, I am from upstate New York, specifically Western New York, Rochester area, but still, go Bills. Uh, and, uh, I lived on the East coast for basically my entire life until February of this year, uh, when me and my wife, uh, we moved to Southern California. We now live in Long Beach. Uh, she is an actor and has been doing some commercial work, uh, for, uh, she, she kind of started, acting in film stuff over the pandemic when things were almost all remote and she happened to land a couple of big jobs uh including a pepsi commercial so she we said you know it's it's time we got to go see if this is actually a thing uh and so now we live in the greater los angeles area (laughs) excellent and uh what was what was the other question i know there was there was who i was where i came from but was that was that all yeah just um like what what do you do? She's, oh yeah, she's, yeah. She's yeah. What do I do? The breadwinner, but <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I, I. Anytime I get the chance to talk my wife up, I, I will absolutely take it because she is just great at pretty much everything. Um, what I do, uh, I am a writer primarily, um, and I cover soccer as probably I am most well known for, I guess, on the internet at this point. Um, 
I have had writing appear in several places at this point. Uh, I have been in The Athletic. Uh, I was at The Athletic when they first launched their soccer vertical, uh, pre-Athletic UK. Uh, I have done lots of stuff for them at this point. Before that, I did things at, uh, at SB Nation uh, for a few sites. I was a writer for Stars and Stripes FC for a while, uh, which is where The Athletic first noticed me. But I also uh, did some stuff for Fear the Wall, uh, the Dortmund fan blog. And at one point also uh, did a few things for Dirty South Soccer, the Atlanta United fan blog, uh, which is a funny story of how I even ended up writing anything for them. Uh, and, uh, and most recently for soccer stuff, I have been, uh, contributing to Joe Lowry's big project backhealed, which is a new website, uh, that I've been having a lot of fun with, um, outside of soccer, uh, I have been primarily writing about video games as, uh, I cover, uh, a, a wide variety of video games, but specialize in the video game apex legends, uh, for a website called esports. And I've also, uh, recently, been brought on full-time for them so i'm a staff writer for them and i also am a weekend editor on the desk there you go that is a, i mean an impressive list of accomplishments there um, <laughs> writing has obviously appeared in a lot of places uh, i'll uh, peek behind the curtain i became familiar with your work through the stars and stripes sb nation blog uh, oh one of the of the originals the ogs and then um like obviously I like I'm not a Dortmund fan and so didn't follow anything there and then re, you reappeared uh, first I think for me um, on TSS and then I was like hey let's check out this athletic thing um, and all the great content behind the paywall so um, <laughs> it really is it's really cool to have a conversation uh, with you just about soccer because I've been reading your stuff for a long time and one thing um, I think listeners will also share is that a lot of soccer content tends to revolve around punditry and taking sure. predictions, stabs in the dark about will this thing work or is this player good? And it can be pretty, you know, monotonous, it just keeps going. But there's a niche within soccer content community for humor. Uh, a little bit of satire, a little bit of what, you know, you might describe as just weird soccer stuff. And <laughs> that is like where I live. I love that stuff. Um, loved Dirty Tackle back in the day and the Dirty Tackle podcast and mm -hmm. just thoroughly enjoyed um, talking about soccer and its most peculiar form. And I think uh, you, you obviously contributed pretty heavily to uh, that niche. So thank you for that. So <laughs> no you, problem. <laughs> so uh, you grew up in Western New York. Um, yeah, that is an area of the country where I think one of the maybe few areas, correct me if I'm wrong, where soccer actually does kind of have a foothold. Um, oh, it does. Totally. And so obviously Rochester, Rochester itself has um, NASL throughout the years, right? And then now USL League. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, currently, there are two uh, pro men's teams in Rochester. Uh, there is Flower City Union, which plays in NISA. Uh, and then there is the now what is 
the awkwardly named Rochester New York Football Club uh, in MLS Next, uh, which is the formerly the Rochester Raging Rhinos, uh, which I think is a better name, but that's yeah, neither here nor there at that point. Jamie Vardy likes Rochester New York FC better, and, and you know what? Good for them. Uh, but yeah, um, Western New York is like pretty a pretty decent soccer foothold, uh, almost at random sometimes. Uh, but obviously, in the past, uh, there was the Western New York Flash, uh, old, the old women's team, uh, where a lot of uh, former U.S. stars and other stars, I think I believe Marta played for them for a while, uh, for at least a year or two. Um, Rochester is the home of Abby Wambach. Um, there's there's a lot of soccer stuff in upstate New York in general. Uh, also, the former home of uh, the U.S. Soccer Hall of Fame uh, was yeah. Oneonta, I believe, uh, which is another another big, uh, just like a, a pure upstate New York place to say. Uh, so yeah, no, soccer is a is is a decently big deal in New York compared to many other places, I think. Absolutely. So, uh, stands to reason then that you, you know, came to, uh, at least knowing about soccer, being exposed to soccer at a, at a fairly young age. So, so walk us through kind of where that all started for you. Um, so for me, soccer fandom began not with, uh, any professional team and not with any United States national team. Um, it began with Brazil uh, because my mom is from Brazil. Uh, my mom was uh, born and raised uh, in uh, in and around Sao Paulo. Uh, and she, uh, she had, my grandparents are American. They lived in Brazil for a couple of decades. And so she uh, grew up first language is Portuguese Um is Brazilian by all intents and purposes, came back to the States. Uh, the whole family came back to the States when she was kind of college age and uh, has lived here ever since. Um, so it's always it's always funny when people, when I tell people this, because they're like, oh, so you're Brazilian. And I'm kind of like, eh, not, not kind of. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to say but, no, but. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's weird. It's a weird situation because I feel like really akin to the culture. And, you know, when, when people ask me, you know, like, oh, what's your favorite comfort food? You know, my favorite comfort foods are not like, you know, mac and cheese or, or fried chicken, even though those are delicious foods. My my favorite comfort foods are is, is stuff like rice and beans, is stuff like pounji keju, um, like that, that were always my mom's go-tos when she was cooking for us as a kid and still now as adults if I'm ever home. <laughs> um, so... You know, one of my formative soccer memories is I remember as a, a very small child, I was, what would I have been? I would have been seven years old, I think. Uh, I remember watching the 1998 World Cup final with my mom uh, when France beat Brazil and watching. And, and that was, and it was just like this this big deal and a big thing. Um, and so I, I caught the soccer bug, I think, early on from my my mom and also my grandparents i mean my first my first soccer kit that anybody ever bought bought me i was probably like five or six years old uh my grandpa and grandma had gone down to brazil and they came back and they brought me a sao paulo football club jersey 
which is super cool. Um, so if, if anybody has me, I don't follow, I don't follow Brazilian soccer, like Brazilian club soccer, uh, that much at, at any points. But if anybody asks me if I have a team, it's obviously Sao Paulo was big, a big fan when, uh, Danny Eva signed for them a few years back. Uh, super, super pumped on that. Um, and like family, friends, and stuff, it was it was just kind of always around. We we always had soccer in addition to all of the American sports, in probably meaningful ways that a lot of people in the United States don't. Because um, I think I think that everybody has like, oh yeah, yeah. There's there's youth soccer leagues. I played soccer as a kid. That was something that we all did. We all got the orange slices and the Capri Suns at halftime. Um, but. I also was around people that actually cared about soccer in more meaningful ways than this is something that this is an activity that my kid does and then they'll grow up and switch to football or baseball or something like that. Yeah. That, that's a, a really awesome background. Uh, the Brazilian connection, obviously uh, familial, but then I think it would resonate with a lot of people who grew up in an area in which, you know, the Brazilian national team specifically was such a phenomenon. And you, you mentioned the 98 World Cup. And um, I <laughs> I came of age uh, during um, Ronaldinho's era of mm-hmm. just flair and excitement. And it, he was one of the big reasons why I became uh, a fan of soccer. And, and Absolutely. His, his Brazil jersey was the first jersey I was ever given. And, like um, – it's fascinating how that can kind of be transported to, you know, this uh, kid in Rochester, New York um, as well. <laughs> like, you know, like who would have thought Brazil would yeah. touch so many different places in that. So obviously you said you grew up playing. Um, how far did did you make it down the playing route before uh, you moved on to other things? Um. I, you know, I, I, as far as like competitive soccer goes and games that I guess mean something, um, I played throughout, I played throughout, you know, like I was a kid in middle school. Um, I quit for a couple of years because I was basically just like going through an awkward stage, a little bit of a late bloomer towards middle school, uh, then started playing again uh, and really got back into the game in a big way towards the end of middle school and beginning of high school, played throughout the rest of high school. Um, I, I think one one thing that definitely was, was formative in several ways, um, but, but was, I mean, kind of just a, a reality in terms of soccer, was lived in a pretty poor town um, in general. Uh, my family was probably lower middle class, I would say. And so there was high school soccer, uh, which thankfully I had a really good coach. I had a, I was at a school that had a a strong soccer program and background. Uh, and so there was a lot of emphasis and a lot of kind of, I don't know, I, I guess prestige put on being in the soccer team. And so, and so I, I was playing throughout soccer there, but any of the like travel league teams, any like actual soccer clubs that you would have to pay for your child to be in, uh, which is just the way of the world in the United States. Um, 
that was always like stuff that was a non-starter for me and my family. My family was never going to be able to afford it. Um, and even if I, even if they could afford it, it was also like, it, I mean, just practices to get to the places were minimum 30 minute drive to and from, you know, the nearest sm- bigger town or city that had one uh, more like some of the people on my team were driving an hour to and from home just to get to practices or games for when they were in their, their travel club seasons. So, uh, after I, I, you know, I was, and I was a fine soccer player. I was, I was perfectly okay as a high school soccer player. I was never going to be a a good, even like a college player. Um, so I, I didn't really try to pursue playing past that. Oh, Uh, I never tried to pursue playing past past uh, uh, high school. So, senior year, uh, we won a couple of section champion sectional championships. Section five, my junior and senior year, uh, made it to state quarterfinals both years. Both years lost in heartbreaking fashion, one nil right before getting to the final four. But uh, yeah, that was kind of the end of my soccer career. I guess I, I played plenty of. Outdoor and indoor intramurals in college, and you know, uh, kept up with the game and playing it in various ways. But that is as that is as much as I played the game. So, did you see that um, once your playing career um, kind of came to an end, that the fascination with soccer, like watching and then commentating and creating content for it, um, was it adversely affected, or did that just like? Did you need to satiate that desire for more soccer by engaging with it on different levels? You know, I, <clears throat> I, I definitely, as I got older and kind of got out of college, I, I definitely felt like, you know, I, I was still like a soccer freak in general. Like, oh, yeah, I'm, I, I was, you know, I was one of the people, and, and still am, I was one of the people that I'm like, I'm going to watch a youth national team game. I'm going to like get excited about our prospects and follow people uh, like going to different clubs. I I became a Dortmund fan in the first place because of uh, in the 2013, uh, either 2013 or 2015 uh, Nike friendlies, the U17s. There's this kid pre, this was before Christian Pulisic's time. There's this kid uh, Junior Flores, who just like went off on one of these in one of these tournaments, and I really really loved his game. He went and signed with Dortmund. It got me paying attention to Dortmund. I fell in love with the fans and how connected everything seemed to the club, and I became a fan. And that's kind of like the long and short of my my Dortmund fandom and how that started. Um, so I was you know I was still very much in the mode of I'm consuming soccer. I really picked up writing. A lot when I was in college, and I started with poetry. That's how I got into writing. I, I took some creative writing poetry classes. I I got bit by the bug hard. I you know I started submitting and got some poems published in different journals, um, and really became obsessed with creating and this idea of I you know I I really really found my place in writing and creating things. Um, and through that, I started, you know, uh, dabbling around in different writing styles. 
I started writing about soccer and it, it, it did really take the form of, of some really, really random and strange posts right from the get go. Uh, I was, I was posting things in SB nation, the, like the fan shot sections where anybody can post whatever. And I remember I, I posted, <laughs> I posted this thing where I, I rewrote a poem, uh, by Billy Collins which is entitled, I think I, I don't I don't remember exactly what it's what it's titled, but I, I it's basically this whole thing is is about it's a funny poem. It's all about a dog barking in his neighbors, and like it's it's just all about how he's annoyed with this dog. And I rewrote it to be about Eric Winalda, and I was like doing things. <laughs> I was I, you know I, I was just being like a, a little punk about things and. And writing some some strange satirical stuff, and and that's really how I got started writing about soccer. I just combined my desire to create and do some different things with writing with my soccer obsession. Absolutely. So that's an excellent segue into one of the things specifically I wanted to talk about, which is um, where that writing bug has led you. And friend of the show, Joe Lowry. Um, and, yeah. his, and his website back healed. Um, I, I personally have thoroughly enjoyed um, getting to uh, to read the content that's come out of back healed. It's been um, informative. It's been in many ways hilarious and just like uh, a great mixture of everything you'd want out of like soccer content because there's such a diversity. And so looking through and getting to read some of your articles, I wanted to um, get some updated feedback on a couple in okay. particular. Uh-huh. I feel like one, I know where this is going, but but continue. <laughs> so the first one is going to be um, the uh, World Cup host cities ranked by their, like, signature food. Sure. And so for those of you who haven't read it, please do. Um, but spoilers, um, Cincinnati comes in at mm-hmm. dead mm-hmm. last. And Indeed. That is solely because of Skyline Chile. And it is. I would love to hear, um, in your own words, um, why why the hatred towards Skyline Chile? Because, spoilers, I agree, and I think it's mm-hmm. garbage. But I uh, I'm interested for someone in uh, is unfamiliar with uh, Skyline uh, Chile. Why yes. why does it rank so low? So, so Cincinnati Chile, uh, or as it is is branded one of the one of the largest brands of Cincinnati chili is skyline chili it is spaghetti like spaghetti noodles like straight up uh and then that spaghetti is topped with a chili type of meat sauce that is kind of weirdly sweet and cinnamony um and then a lot of the time that is then topped with just heaps of shredded and unmelted cheese. And we're not talking about like Parmesan cheese. We're talking about like some some yellow cheese, whether that's cheddar or I, I don't like, I, I'm not even exactly certain what type of cheese is used. Um, it is it is just a, it is just some some yellow shredded cheese that that gets dumped on top of that. And it is I the, the way to describe it 
is kind of like a, a car crash in culinary form. Uh, nothing, nothing really goes together here. Uh, I think in a way that's appetizing. The after effects are absolutely abysmal, um, and I just can't condone it in any form. I, I, I don't think I could have made this connection without the uh, the work uh, that you had done but it really is a metaphor for Cincinnati FC um, it is basically <laughs> an ongoing car wreck um, nobody really well, knows the pieces that uh, need to fit together and it also will give you gastrointestinal distress <laughs> I think I think that is certainly a a succinct summation of uh, FC Cincinnati in the past I will true. say that, that they have been significantly better this year uh, they the you know the the new the new management has really gotten the pieces on the field clicking uh, so I, I can't disparage FC Cincinnati too much they have proven this year that finally uh, they are no longer in the abject misery of just trying to make sure that people don't score too many goals on them. <laughs> they actually produce some interesting and exciting attacking moves. Brandon Vasquez has obviously been really, really good this year. Uh, Lucho Acosta has looked like the best version of himself that we saw with Wayne Rooney a lot of the times in DC. Respect to FC Cincinnati and the job that has been done. It must be said. It's true. It's true. And for the one listener in Cincinnati who you're you're just you're hovering over that pause button, you're about to just give up. Let me transition us then to the top of that ranking, where we will um, come to my neck of the woods in Kansas City's uh-huh. Burnt Ends, uh-huh. uh, and <clears throat> an unf- and not quite as a, a s- a seamless metaphor. Um, as burnt ends are basically perfection and sporting Kansas City or anything. But but let me hear why, what about the burnt ends? What about that just barbecuey goodness stole the show for you? So, I mean, if you've never had, it's hard to describe burnt ends outside of a, a, a burnt end that is done well. As opposed to well done, which is a different connotation in the in the realm of of cooked meat. Uh, a burnt end that's done well is this kind of crispy, blackened exterior, and then you bite in, and it's essentially meat that has been cooked to the consistency of almost butter. <laughs> it, it is astounding how much flavor and how tender it is and it's something a a really really a really really good burnt end is i think i've often described food in terms of spiritual experiences um because and 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 that's actually like a that's actually a belief of mine like that i hold i i think that there is a a spiritual and metaphysical exchange when you make food for somebody and they eat it, or you eat some food that somebody else has made for you, um, and the burnt end, the burnt end is just so good, and I and I think that it enters into that conversation. Now, do you have a specific um, Kansas City barbecue preference uh, when you're in the area, or just burnt ends in general, anywhere, anyway? 
Um, I, in in general, I think that I'm always if if I am in any sort of barbecue place, I am gonna see if they have burnt ends, and if they do, I'm gonna go for it. Um, I the the only time I've ever been in Kansas City proper was extre- an extremely long time ago. I was a very small child, um, and so. I don't. I don't have any reliable Kansas City spots. If I ever happen to find myself in Kansas City, I invite anybody that follows me to to give me all the suggestions that they can. Um, but in general, alongside the burn ends, what I really like about Kansas City barbecue and Kansas City style barbecue, wherever it is found, is is kind of its flexibility. Just because Texas barbecue so so strongly, you know, it, it is. It is beef. You are talking about brisket so much of the time when you're talking about Texas barbecue. North Carolina barbecue, uh, well, all Carolina barbecue, really, which which I've had much more of because I used to live in fairly close proximity, proximity to the Carolinas, so strongly with pork. That is, that is their thing. Um, pork shoulders, whole hogs, all these different places. Uh, and then you obviously have the differences in barbecue sauces all around. I just like how flexible Kansas City is with their barbecue. You know, they're not afraid to try all the different meats. They're not afraid to try, you know, there there is a there's definitely, you know, a a preference for you know you have the dry rub and then you're you're going with a with a with slightly sweeter sauce in a, in a lot of places. But I think that even in that there is an a willingness to try different things and branch out a little bit more than many of these other places that have extremely hard and fast rules that they are assigning to the barbecue. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I'm admittedly biased as I am. (laughs) Uh, But uh, as it pertains to the host cities, um, I think if you are going to be traveling to Kansas City for a World Cup game, um, you would do well to get some ma- some manner of Kansas City barbecue from one of the many incredible joints that uh, are there. Um, so, Adam, then we'll pivot um, because I really don't want to talk about... <laughs> I, don't, I have no <laughs> idea what's happening outside my apartment right now. Uh, listeners, oh, it's just it's just it's just some kids throwing a football around. That's all that's happening. <laughs> listeners, if you can't see it, there's like active anarchy going outside of Snavely's yeah. uh, uh, door window right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but because I don't want to talk about sporting Kansas City and their uh, wretched. That's fair. Yeah. No, I I would be in I'll the same position if I was here. Jeez. <laughs> I okay. <laughs> It must it must be stated. I live directly next to a road, like a, a fairly main thoroughfare, and uh, there are you know it, it is it is a relatively straight road, and so people like to gun it gun. down this road. That's just <laughs> what happens. So um, moving on then to the other piece from the vacuum, uh, which may be the one that you were hinting at, the anti-analysis mm. graph. Mm-hmm. Um, it is really, frankly, it's a work of art. Um, <laughs> and the connection, the segue, Kansas City Art Museum, work of art, anti-analysis chart. It flows, yes. flows perfectly. Yep. 100%. Um, so I, I had, 
I admittedly spent quite a bit of time trying to one just to see who the players were on this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> had to kind of zoom so, in there. Uh-huh, but that's fair, that's fair. There are a few questions that I think um, I wanted to to see if now post-June window any mm-hmm. of these might have moved. Um, hopefully not stealing any updates for future content, but um, we, we have the infamous um, Are They a Dog? D-A-W-G yeah. ranking, yep. which truly is one of the most underrated factors in a player. Are they a dog or are they not a dog? Because if they're not a dog, what are they doing? What Are they, yep. are they even a player? And on this list, um, you have Paul Areola. Yes. A dog. Mm. So um, I wanted to, to get your opinions on the controversial anomaly that is Paul Areola. <laughs> this is a man who divides opinion maybe more than anyone else on sure. U.S. men's national team Twitter. And I'll admit, I have a soft spot for Paul. He And I always have. That's fair. That's fair. Because uh, of a certain vintage of national team fan, um, will recall that there was a day and age in which the national team was defined by its doggedness. Yes. By the Paul Areolas, who were run fast, try hard, never say die, and mm-hmm. within the occasional sprinkling in of your, like, uh, Claudio Reynas and, you know, the like, who who brought some uh, so sophistication to yeah. the otherwise brute force approach of the United States. Yeah. And it seems like the culture has shifted now that we've developed talent like, you know, Claudio's son, Gio, Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams, Christian Pulisic. I mean, guys who are technically proficient, who've grown up in academies and in Europe who had, they had to develop the technical side of their game. Um, why is there still a place for the dogs, for the Paul Areola, why is it still, um, why is there still need for the run fast, try hard mentality in the national team? If there is, do we need more oh. Paul? Do we need more Areolas? Is what I'm asking. <laughs> well, I think that everybody always needs a max of two Areolas, uh, generally speaking. But more specifically, um, I think that there is always going to be a place for somebody that can bring the work rate and the willingness to get stuck in and and the mentality that Paul Ariola brings that is that is always going to be something that is 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 just going to be valuable especially on the international level because on the international level you just can't do as many things as you can at the club level, you're not as familiar with the teammates, you know, with, you know, some, some exceptions, obviously given like the Spanish team from 2008 to 2014 or something like that, that, you know, half of them played for Barcelona. The other half of them played for Madrid. They are all incredibly familiar with each other. They become one of the best international teams to ever exist. That that's what happens. But in the vast majority of, of times and, and in these games, you're going to have 
not as fluid games, not as intricate tactics. You're going to have teams and players that that might have a little bit of a harder time connecting on the same level that they do at the club level because they're just around their club teammates more than they're around their international teammates. And that makes those types of players and those people super, super important in in a variety of contexts in many, many different ways. Um, and, and one of the people that I kind of go back to to illustrate that point a lot of the time is not an American player, but if we think about, you know, if we if I go back to Brazil, a team that I also follow, and and think about Brazil, and you always think about how technically proficient so many people are on the Brazilian teams, how they always seem to produce players and use players that can conjure something out of nothing. If you look at Chiche's 2018 side, one of the most important pieces is Paulinho, who is not really that type of player. He's much more of a brute force player in a lot of ways. Um, and and a person that is going to run people down and and get stuck into a lot of these challenges. And, and in many ways in that Brazil team, be a battering ram offensively on set pieces and, and kind of arriving late in the box. Those type of players, I think, are always going to have a place in the national teams. Now, obviously, the ideal is you get people that can produce a work rate and a doggedness at that level that also possess a certain amount of technical ability. And I think that over the last couple of years on the U.S. team, if I look at people that have done that and can do that on a similar similar level to Paul Areola, somebody like Tim Weah comes to mind. And specifically over the last year, when I look at his performances, Tim Weah is so good at applying defensive pressure. He's a person that wants to make people make mistakes. And even in games when he isn't necessarily as impactful attacking as he wants to be, he always still makes his presence felt by what he's doing, maybe when he's not on the ball, maybe when he's applying defensive pressure similar to Paul Ariola. So I think that 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 idea of like a doggedness is something that's always going to be valuable on the international level for a wide variety of teams including the United States. Now regarding the chart, I maybe possibly put Paul Ariola all the way to the left on the not nice scale for the memes. Uh it it is possible that that definitely occurred. Um, because I, I don't think that Paul Ariola is a complete, you know, absolutely lacking all skill. You know, if you're a professional soccer player at this level, even uh, at the level of even MLS, I know people like to crap on MLS, but whatever. In in MLS too, you possess a lot more skill than than the than the vast majority of people, and I think that Paul Ariola has a lot of traits and good things that he does beyond you know, applying defensive pressure and being willing to kick somebody if the situation calls for it. Um, so I, so yeah, there might've been, there might've been some jokes there, but I think that there is also a compelling argument to be made that Paul Ariola is up there with some of, with, I think there are very few, I'll put it this way. I think there are very few United States men's national team players that have ever played for the U.S. team that get as much from 
such a limited physical ceiling that I think Paul Ariola has that he gets and that he brings onto the field. Because um, I don't think Paul Ariola is, is really an elite athlete in the sense of physical characteristics, uh, at least not to the level of a lot of other people that will be playing international soccer and a lot of other people that play for the United States men's national team. But what he gets out of that is incredibly impressive and very consistent for both club and for country. Yeah, exactly. I've always thought of it as like this idea that, you know, humans only use 20% of their brain's capacity at any given time. It's like for the national team. Yeah. If, if you're getting 30%, 40% of what a Christian Pulisic, Tim way, you know, Weston McKinney and Tyler Adams, uh, are capable of at any given time that's i mean pretty elite caliber um for at least the national team uh the international game but with paul Ariola, you're getting like 90 percent of what he has in him at any given time and there will always in my opinion be room for that kind of a player so when you just don't have to worry about being motivated you don't have to worry about you know having to, I don't know, energize in a way to like go out and, and just do what they're asked as you might with somebody who is maybe a little more catered to in most contexts. Sure. Paul Ariola knows what he is. And in that way, he is the true American hero. <laughs> and I think that, I mean, on, on the chart, uh, which I stole the chart, <laughs> I, the, the chart is not my original creation or idea. Exclusive the chart was, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the chart. The chart was. I saw the chart and I made my own version of it because I wanted a slightly more higher definition version. Uh, but I originally saw the chart posted uh, by Kim McCauley, uh, formerly of SB Nation, now works for Angel City, uh, NWSL club. But uh, she posted it, and I said that's funny. And also, I could turn this into an entire like analysis bit. Uh, but. In my introduction of the chart in the article, I make, you know, the, I think the, the very valid anti-analysis claim that you can not be so nice and still contribute really well if you have high dog, but if you don't have, you can't, cause you can't replace nice. Like you, you can, you can, you can be really nice and not have a lot of dog in you, but if you are not very nice, you have to have high dog. Absolutely. So that is, and and that kind of comes down to, in this situation, even in games when Paul Ariola, like when nothing is going right for him, in games where he just can't seem to get free, he just can't seem to to get past his defenders or or progress the ball very far, in, in games where it's clearly not going his way, he still finds ways to be useful. There's never a purely bad Paul Ariola game. There are always a couple of moments, even in his worst games, there's always a few things that prove like a value and and that he's there's a reason that he is here, which is very very valuable. And I think I mean in the in the grand scheme of the chart, that is the dog. That's the dog in you. Yes, exactly. I agree wholeheartedly. The other individual I wanted to talk about from this chart was Tyler Adams, because as I'm looking um, along this chart, I see um, Tyler Adams a little bit in the uh, more nice 
column, and it it definitely man's a dog, but um, in the nice column, everything I've seen of Tyler Adams, he's a polite individual, you know, um, but but every interview, every everything I've seen of him as a player, just screams like the kind of guy that like you almost kind of would hate if he's on your team because he's gonna let you know. And so I'm curious <laughs> though, if after that June window, watching him. Uh, quite literally suplex a guy into yeah. next week. Does that move Tyler Adams into the not nice high dog quadrant? Or do you think there's still a gentle, I won't say giant because he's a pretty small guy, gentle Red Bull in there? Well, he's still nice. He's still nice because nice refers, nice is more of a, of a, of a skill reference. Yeah. Uh, so so he, he maintains his position in the nice. That boy is nice. Uh, but he definitely got a bump up in in the dog. And I, I said this I said this on Twitter. There is such a thing sometimes as too much dog. Sometimes you have some players that definitely have a high amount of dog and it can get them in trouble. Paul Ariola, as we have stated, a high dog enters the game against El Salvador promptly gets red carded whether the red card was just or not all i'm saying is he has a high dog and when you have a player that has high dog things like that tend to happen i thought prior to the window that tyler adams was kind of like right along the ideal level of dog because tyler adams is usually very smart about it and that's that was borne out in qualifiers he picks up a questionable and kind of silly yellow card right at the beginning of World Cup qualifiers does not get another yellow the entire set of qualifiers, which is insanely difficult to do when you are a defensive midfielder because there is bound to be times when the correct play on the field for the game is, I got to take the tactical foul here, I got to pull this guy's shirt to make sure that we don't get scored on and take a yellow card. Absolutely nuts that Tyler Adams made it through the rest of those games and did not pick up another yellow card. And speaks to what I thought was the completely proper level of dog. But then, <laughs> then we got to our June games. We get to the El Salvador game. Tyler Adams is stirring things up. And I and I think that the calls, I, I get it. I understand. The calls for Tyler Adams' dog score to be bumped up heard i think they definitely were after after all was said and done with the june games yeah absolutely uh seeing that play out live um was one of the most entertaining things i've ever seen uh, something that at times especially in Concacaf qualifying um you just kind of wish would happen more you just you're just <laughs> like yeah yeah i wish a tyler adams could have suplexed a brian ruiz or an albert elise just <laughs> or especially uh, Hector Herrera um, at various uh, points. Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, um, I think it was more born out of just get us off of this uh, mud field. Yeah, a tough, a tough game, a tough game in so many ways, in so many respects. The, the epitome of, like, uh, in my mind, if a CONCACAF stan were going to show... Um, our UEFA counterparts like you don't you don't really understand how hard CONCACAF qualifying is until you experience this <laughs> yeah but I think 
I think also like super valuable for people like another person who I think got a considerable dog boost uh, from from that game, Yunus Musa. Um, obviously, somebody who isn't I mean didn't even grow up watching Concacaf games or, or following the U.S. men's team. I would assume I would imagine that that would be the case. Um, now is one of those people that you know along with the the Anthony Robinsons, the Cameron Carter Vickers of the world, you know, they're they're getting that like this is this is what it's like. And this is kind of something that you just have to play through. And for such a young player like Yunus Musa showed up and while a bunch of things in terms of end product weren't coming off for him in that game, he was I mean, essentially the sole reason that we'd end up tying that game because his pressure, his run in behind is what draws the red card, is what evens the game back up and momentum-wise keeps us in the game, first of all, and then brings us all the way back and and we, you know, we end up getting the goal, pressing forward and and eventually the pressure results in a goal. So... I mean that is that is a, a a great game from him. One of not one of the the technically best games that I've ever seen. I don't think it was anybody's technically best games. It was impossible to be one of your best technical games uh, on that field. But I think incredibly valuable and definitely something of a learning experience for somebody as young and somebody that doesn't have as much Concacaf experience like Yunus Musa. Yeah, agreed. Specifically for. Um, players like Yunus Musa, who uh, I think do need that little bit of CONCACAF experience, especially given that, you know, in this next go-around, there won't really be qualifying. Um, they, yeah. won't, they won't have something as, as like, important as needing to qualify for the World Cup again for a long time. And mm-hmm. the, the reality after 2026 is still to be seen, but... Um, the likelihood that it'll be as difficult to qualify um, is also so these experiences I think are, are going to be vital for them but Adam uh, I don't want to take up too much more of your time but I did want to kind of touch on the heart of our podcast which is the fandom side of it we've talked a little bit about the origins the teams but I want to know about the moments the those moments that stick into your head your mind your heart um, that made you a fan, that have kept you a fan, that live in the brain forever. Um, uh, what moments stand out to you as a as a fan, coming of age or even now? Yeah. Um, moments that stand out to me as a fan. Uh, obviously, I already told you about watching the 1998 World Cup final. Um, I remember... For example, uh, Brian McBride's diving header against Portugal, super, just like, just in, in kind of astounding moment. Like, I love that 2002. Um, I remember seeing, I mean, one of my, one of my favorite, I think possibly the, the, the best goal scored by a U.S. national team. Um, or at least like one of the most dramatic, I guess, is probably um, Abby Wambach's goal in 2011 uh, at the World Cup in Germany. 
against Brazil. Uh, so first of all, my family is watching that. You know, uh, we're playing uh, we're playing against Brazil, so that's automatically a big deal for my family. Uh, we were watching that with it was uh, you know my family and we had a we also had a Brazilian foreign exchange student that was staying with us that year. So we were it was like a bunch of people. We had some friends over. It was kind of a you know friendly like people are cheering for both teams, but also like. Uh, some of the people are definitely cheering for America and some of the people are definitely cheering for Brazil. And we get to the point towards the end of the game where Brazil is clearly like very, very blatantly wasting time and, and doing some like some some very underhanded gamesmanship. The and then, at, yes, yeah, absolutely. And and Abby Wambach scores the goal in like the 122nd minute. And I remember flipping out for that goal. I remember flipping out for Jermaine Jones's goal against Portugal in the 2014 World Cup. The sound, um, the sound yes. that that made when it hit the net will live in my soul forever. I, yeah, it's, I mean, I was I was watching at a at a bar with my brother and some friends, and everybody in the bar was watching it. And I just remember, it sounds like. It almost sounds the sound of that ball hitting the net is almost like somebody doing like a belly flop into a water or something like that. <laughs> and I and I remember you hear just the slap of that goal hitting the back of the net, and then the sound in in the the bar that I was in. It's just absolutely deafening as people are just losing their minds that this has occurred, that we have scored a goal like this in general, let alone against Cristiano Ronaldo in Portugal, let alone in the World Cup again. Like, it was an astounding moment. Um, so that that one definitely really stands out for me uh, amongst all these other uh, U.S. national team moments and things that I was uh, a really big fan of. Um, other, I mean, outside of... Outside of that and and those moments, um, trying to think of some other other teams and and other uh, fandom things, I remember just purely as a fan of the game and fan of MLS and not really necessarily cheering particularly hard for either team. Uh, being at uh, MLS Cup in two thousand eighteen was really really fun and really cool uh atlanta united versus the portland timbers atlanta united wins it was one of the loudest probably i mean it was it was the loudest loudest stadium or environment in general that i have ever been to um when they scored those goals i it it was one of those one of those one of those things where it's so loud that you can't hear like changes in pitch uh, it's it is just a, a wall of noise, uh, and that was super impressive. Something I I won't ever forget. Um, I will say that uh, in terms of uh, my my fandom of of the Brazilian teams uh, and and things that really stand out. Um, I mean, obviously, everything that Ronaldinho did at Barcelona. Um, <laughs> At least on the field. <laughs> At least on the field, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, just like, just so many like moments that are just astounding, and and you can't believe it. And I mean, in terms of play and what he did, is probably my favorite men's soccer player of all time. Um, yeah. Uh, watching, I, I mean, watching the 
the what was it 2012 or 2013 Champions League final between Dortmund and Bayern, uh, and you just have like a, a fully split stadium where half the stadium is red, half of it is yellow, and it's just walls of color and noise. Uh, didn't go great for me, obviously, but yeah. it was it, it's still an impactful memory. And and you still had the the insane run that was to that final where you yeah. take out Real Madrid. Just remembering how good that team was, really really cool, really really fun. Um, I don't know. Th- those are definitely some of the the moments of uh, soccer fandom that that stick out to me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that 2013 Champions League final. That one holds a special place. I was in Germany. Uh, oh wow! And uh, we were in. Uh, Stuttgart and so definitely no Bayern fans <laughs> no <laughs> one fair. wanted Bayern to win but well, it's sure. just cool to see an all German Champions League final in Germany and like everybody it was it felt like a real experience and one that I wish I had maybe been able to appreciate more like you know and yeah uh, been more mature in my fandom at the time but oh absolutely. still such a cool experience and really I think if you look back at the names uh, playing for Dortmund at that time, like, you know, obviously all of the annoying aspects of <laughs> what Bayern are <laughs> and pulling all the talent from that team, that, that whole team yeah. and Klopp getting kind of torn apart. But, um, but just the epitome of, I think like the, the heavy metal football, the, the exciting like aspects yeah. of, attacking German soccer and I loved that Dortmund team um, and getting to experience that in Germany was a really cool thing so um, lastly I just want to give you the opportunity um, <laughs> to to all of our many thousands of listeners I'm sure um, but but to um, just tell us a little bit more about where we can find you where they can find you follow you um, and uh, just briefly why why they should check out Backyield. Ah, um, so uh, like I said, I'm uh, regularly featured on Backyield, uh, backyield.com. Uh, most of my stuff, wherever it pops up, will show up on my Twitter feeds because uh, that's where I am in general most active. So I, I now have two Twitters because I realize that a lot of my video game stuff uh, just wasn't as interesting for a lot of the people that just followed me for soccer. Uh, and so I kind of decided, made the decision to just, especially when I got uh, a full-time position without eSports to, to switch those streams. Uh, so my my original Twitter and still my, my most followed Twitter is at Snaves, S-N-A-V-E-S. Uh, that's where you can find the bulk of my soccer thoughts and almost anything that I post alongside works that you can find in backfield occasionally still popping up in the athletic all that good stuff um and then if you are interested at all in my video game takes uh and and things of that nature uh my video game account on twitter is at gg snavely and you can find my work on dot esports um as far as why people should follow backfield i just really really enjoy how natural backfield feels for me in terms of writing that's coming from people that are uh, people that can be described as experts in many ways and people that that have really really good and interesting ideas but also people that 
are those that got into the game via fandom in many ways uh and and just because they were super i mean kind of like me like just soccer obsessed in many ways and have developed those skills have parlayed that into you know careers and different writing uh different uh, writing skills and all of that um so I like backheeled because it still retains that aspect of these people. I think in most cases were and are fans and are unafraid to be fans of certain teams, certain players, um, but still bring a level of professionalism, a level of skill and, and writing to the website. Um, and I think that, in that vein, it, that's uh, it's just that niche that it's carved for itself. Um, it's very entertaining in tandem with being very informative. So that's why I think that you should uh, read Backhill. Uh, in addition to, I think that people should support my work. And I think that people should support uh, Joe Lowry's work. Because I think that Joe is incredibly talented and super, super smart. And I really, really enjoy working with him and all the things that he writes. So when he contacted me and told me, Hey, I'm starting this thing. I was basically immediately like, yes, I want to be a part of it. Let's do this. So, so yeah, there's, there's a, there's a lot of, of really, really smart and good people writing for the site. Um, and I appreciate how they angle and combine their fandom with their ability to write and cover the game. Well, uh, Adam, it has been a genuine pleasure to have you on the show and getting to talk about just an absolute variety of different topics, <laughs> which is exactly why I wanted to talk to you because I think it's just, um, it's an underappreciated part of the soccer content world. Um, just letting, you know, enjoying the weirdness of soccer because it is such a weird game, but um, especially in our American context, um, just let's make it what it is and let's embrace it. So, uh, Adam, thank you so much. I appreciate you being on the show and, uh, um, listeners be sure to check out both backyield and adam um, and his writing elsewhere and uh, we'll uh, catch you guys next week i want to thank adam once again for being on the show it was a true pleasure to get to interview him and talk about the game that we both love if you're interested in hearing more content like this then please go and rate and review the show on your podcasting platform of choice. It'll help others find us and it'll help us continue to produce this podcast. Until next week, I've been Mark Pajarski. Peace.